Welcome everyone. My name is Francesca Yocorto. I'm an advisory board member of the Pearson Centre. I'm also the Senior Director of Public Affairs at the National Airlines Council of Canada. As many of you will know, the Pearson Centre is a progressive centrist think tank that addresses the big economic and social challenges of the day. In that context, I'm pleased to welcome you to the fifth webinar on major policy issues related to COVID-19 and how they are affecting our society. Today, we will talk about seniors' care in Canada with a special focus on the crisis in long-term care. We've all heard about the issues over the years during the COVID crisis and most recently with the military reports last week. I also want to let you know that uh, this will be the beginning of the Pearson Centre's focus on this issue. We will be doing further study and engagement uh, over the coming uh, months and we will be issuing a short report with recommendations this summer. I invite you to reach out to us if you're interested in uh, working on this uh, issue along with the Pearson Centre. I also want to take a moment to thank two sustaining sponsors without whose help these sessions would not be possible. They are Canada's Building Trades Unions and second, the Interna International Association of Firefighters. Now back to the panel. We have three knowledgeable panelists who know and care about this field deeply and I want to thank them very sincerely for taking time out of their busy schedules to be with us today. They are first Donna Duncan, who is the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents nearly 70% of Ontario's 630 long-term care homes located in communities across the province. Their members provide care and accommodation to more than 70,000 residents. Second, we have Vicki McKenna, who is the president of the Ontario Nurses Association. The ONA represents 60,000 registered nurses and allied health professionals working in hospitals, long-term care facilities, public health, community agencies and industry in Ontario. And third, we have Iris Evans, who is a Pearson Centre board member. She's also a former Minister of Health and Wellness and Minister of Finance in Alberta. She's currently helping to raise funds for Seniors Lodge and has a strong interest in the societal responsibility to support vulnerable people. Our moderator today will be Andrew Cardozo, who of course is the president of the Pearson Centre. And Andrew also writes a uh, weekly column for the Hale Times on various public policy issues. With respect to the format, the panel discussion will last about 40 minutes and then be followed by a Q&A session before we wrap up promptly at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Please use the question box on your screen and we will get to as many questions as we can. This session is being recorded and will be posted on the Pearson YouTube channel later on this afternoon. So on that, uh, I will turn things uh, over to Andrew. Thank you, Francesca, and uh, thank you for providing the, uh, the framework for our discussion today. Uh, I will just mention we've got two other webinars planned for next week. Uh, one is on uh, tourism and travel, which will take place on June the 10th, uh, the tourism travel industries, and the other is on racism and COVID uh, that will likely be on the 8th. We're just talking to various uh, uh, panelists, and we'll either have it on, uh, on Monday or Friday of next week. So. Uh, keep in touch with our website uh, to participate in those sessions. Um, so welcome panelists. Uh, let me start with, um, with uh, 
um, with Donna Duncan from the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. And, and uh, the question I have for all of you is, we've all seen um, a fair amount what's happening in terms, what's happened in terms of seniors care since the COVID crisis began uh, over two months ago. Uh, let me ask each of you to share your observations about what's happening and what we've seen and what we've learned. And I'll start with you, Donna. Great, thanks, Andrew. And it's it's a, a privilege to be able to join you today. So, you know, certainly this has been a, a tragic circumstance for us in, in long-term care. And and as we looked around the globe and, and certainly watched from Ontario, as we saw what was happening in other countries, uh, we actually, I told the government of Ontario that we were facing a perfect storm in long-term care. And unfortunately, that was the truth. Uh, we had uh, significant critical staffing shortages in long-term care, and, and that, that's across the country, not just in Ontario. Uh, aging infrastructure, uh, homes with rooms uh, that had four residents in them, three residents, shared washrooms, uh, suboptimal for infection control. Uh, certainly, uh, we, the, the governments around the world and, and in Canada uh, prioritize hospitals uh, over uh, seniors care uh, at the beginning of, of this. Uh, I would say that where we've certainly seen the, the greatest losses and, and uh, certainly in Ontario with mm -hmm. over 626 homes, uh, more than 80% of those homes did not go into outbreak. But where we did see significant and tragic loss and where, where the army was called to go in and help, the, these were homes that ended up in dire straits. Uh, and, and in large part because their, their staffing shortages were so critical to begin with, the age of the building, certainly the timing uh, of, of their outbreaks and whether they were in an uh, outbreak before uh, 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 COVID-19 arrived. Uh, also, we, we've certainly looked at the geography. Uh, so were these homes in hotspots? Uh, and uh, quite honestly, um, these homes were, were asking for help and, and in some cases pleading for help uh, and help it took a long time for help to come. Uh, and when it did, it, it came in the form of hospitals, came in the form of, of the military uh, who unveiled uh, dire situations when they went in on May 15th. Um, but uh, what, what I would say that, that really is, is stark for us is um, where would we be if we had had the hospital surge in Canada and in Ontario? Where would our long-term care homes be? Uh, because it was, wasn't until April 15th that the government of Ontario launched an action plan prioritizing long-term care for personal protective equipment, uh, for testing, uh, and for those extra human resources. Um, and uh, we saw that that action plan and, and the help that has come in has, has really made a difference. I think that the challenge for us is this is the beginning of the pandemic, not the end. Uh, how do we get out ahead of this? How do we work together to fix it? Um, but it, 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 it's been very stark on the ground. And, and do you feel that um, things have stabilized now that the Ontario government is more involved with that action plan? I, I would argue yes. Uh, certainly, the prioritization for personal protective equipment, uh, the support on uh, infection prevention and control has been profoundly important. Uh, certainly, virtual supports as well, including with our nurses uh, and 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 care, has has been very important for us. 
uh, and uh, getting the support with hospitals and military and others for staff. But those are interim solutions for staffing. Uh, we, we have to figure out how we're going to manage on a go-forward basis rather than, than these Band-Aids. But uh, uh, it's working, but we have to find a way to keep, keep moving and prioritizing long-term care for these things on a go-forward basis. Yeah. Uh, Vicki McKenna, Ontario Nurses Association, talk to us about your uh, perceptions and, and also just to clarify, you represent more than just the RNs, is that right? Primarily, uh, first off, thank you very much for including me in that panel discussion today. Um, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to discuss and to share some our observations, my observations, but ours of uh, the Nurses Association. Primarily, our membership is registered nurses, over 90%, almost 95% are registered nurses, and we have registered practical nurses as well as nurse practitioners, and we have health professionals um, for, right across in different organizations, and all that had to do with uh, labor uh, jurisdictions and things over the years, but they are welcome, uh, certainly, and a big part of our union, even if they are small. So we do have uh, over almost 4,500 uh, nurses that are working in long-term care facilities, both um, um, homes for the aged, uh, for-profit, non-for-profit nursing homes, and certainly in home care as well, which I know we're going to touch on a little bit uh, further on, as well as public health and industry and clinics. So we do represent uh, a broad spectrum of nurses working in the system. So to start, I want to say that uh, what we're experiencing and what we experienced here in Ontario right from the very beginning has been tragic, as Donna said, but it's been horrific in many ways. Uh, and I do agree that uh, staffing shortages are, have been an issue. But I also want to say that um, the, the tragedy is felt certainly by, most certainly by the families. and and by the residents in long-term care, and, and we want to express our, our you know, thoughts to all of them, but the workers. Um, in Ontario, and people may not realize this, but we have uh, over 4,000, um, as I said, workers um, that we represent, but almost half, um, bumped over half now of the healthcare workers that have been affected and, and that are ill from COVID-19 are in the long-term care sector. And that has hit particularly hard. Um, and certainly we have had a nurse die from COVID-19 in Ontario as well, which has um, been certainly tragic for the family and the whole community of nursing in Ontario and across this country. Uh, it's a very, very difficult situation right now, but our primary job has been to, to do everything we can to protect the healthcare workers, the nurses. Uh, because when they're safe and they're protected, so are the residents, and that's the core of our work. Uh, the, the amount of infections and those that have died in long-term care is unacceptable, and I think that we all have a job to do uh, to make sure that that never happens again. We do everything that we can in order to prevent anything like that from happening ever in the future, but we are in the midst of the COVID crisis here in Ontario. I know other provinces are experiencing different different things, their curves are coming down. Our numbers are still over 400 today. We still, over the weekend, still experienced a number of positive cases and continue to have hospitalizations and many, many people in our intensive care units and in our homes and in the nursing homes in particular. 
But right from the beginning, the availability of personal protective equipment was a huge challenge, certainly right across the sector, but predominantly in long-term care is where we saw it the most. Uh, staffing, as Donna said, is, continues to be an issue and will continue to be an issue unless we act to make that different. And also we have to ensure we have aging infrastructure, but we there are a number of um, what we call administrative controls that, that weren't put in place that would have, we believe, prevented a number of the infections uh, that, have, uh, that we're experiencing here in Ontario. Uh, we, that's about cohorting, and that's about keeping the ill in you know, physically different locations than those that are well. Uh, there's some things like that that have happened in Ontario as, uh, along with the Ministry of Labour inspections and the Ministry of Health inspections. There's a number of things that didn't play the part that they should have played. And I agree with Donna, the focus in Ontario began in the hospitals on strategy, absolutely. Um, she and I were in the, at those very beginning tables where the focus was, and the questions were asked, what about long-term care? It did come late. Um, however, we had organizations that we know of that acted uh, quickly and didn't wait for directives from government. They did things, uh, some of our, many of our homes did things in the very early days uh, in order to prevent infections coming into their facilities. So we do have a lot of challenges ahead of us, but we are certainly willing to and able and will be a part of the inquiry that comes forward in whatever shape that comes. But we are every day working to ensure that that nurses are safe and that they're protected. And if they are, then we know that we are trying our very best to protect the residents because it's really about Ontarian. Yeah, I, can I just ask in terms of uh, full-time or part-time, are most of your members full-time? We've seen no. in, in the, in, well, please go ahead. Yeah, no, Andrew, I understand. Yeah, the question, and this is a very important question is about the, the full-time versus part-time ratios that currently exist in our staffing and long-term care facilities. And part-time is, is, many, many of our members are part-time and there's fewer full-time jobs. And that is a historic staffing pattern in long-term care. And it's one that's been carried over for oh, more than a decade, I would say. And one of the main issues around retention and staffing, at least for the, on the nurses' side of it. And we have nurses who work in two, three, even four facilities in order to cobble together enough hours in order to sustain themselves and their families. And so that is, is a problem. And we know from the infection control side of it, having workers move from institution to institution is, is very much a problem around infection control. And this was an issue that, that we raised and that was you know, discussed during the SARS. There were recommendations out of the um, SARS commission. There have been recommendations around that and going forward for years now. And the staffing patterns have not changed in relation to that. And so that has been very much, a, very much a difficult situation that put the staffing at, at, at you know, shortages that Donna talked about. And there are strategies that would mitigate that, but none of, many of those have come into play. The other situation, of course, is, is compensation and job security. And this is, again, the, the priority uh, for other nurses across the healthcare sector is not there in long-term care. And that is really something that we've been battling for years now in order to have nurses 
properly compensated um, and to have the health and welfare benefits that will retain them in the sector. Nurses who work in long-term care, and we've done lots and lots of polling and work with them over a number of years, but what they love the work. I mean, people work in a particular organization or a type of practice because it is their niche and it's where they where they love to be, but it's very difficult if they can't secure the pro enough to sustain themselves and their families and they do leave. And yeah. we, we lose them for all kinds of reasons, but that is one of the major reasons is stability in their compensation and hours uh, so that they continue to do the work that they love. Okay, thank you. Um, Iris Evans, uh, please uh, share with us your perspectives. You've been a health minister and a finance minister. Um, you, you trained as a nurse originally, and you've been, um, um, uh, share with us your perspective that you have also from an Alberta perspective. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, well, as a Canadian, I look at uh, both Don and Vicky with a tremendous pride that uh, the healthcare sector has such strong professionals working in leadership positions. And I have to say, I look at the Prime Minister and the Premiers of Canada and the territories, all that leadership, and know that while we have struggled and suffered through this collaborative process, that we have resisted the impulse to become politically um, interactive in an unbecoming way. Let's just say I have been proud of Canadian leadership because although we have disagreed on some fronts, we have respected each other's views. I have also shared with you the compassion and passion and a sense of loss and sadness, especially with the military report about those facilities that have, in fact, um, had less than a stellar uh, delivery of care to those residents. There's no other way to say it. And so right now, when I look at things like that, I think of the seven dimensions of wellness and think that one of the sorrows for the people that lost their families and, and lost their loved ones is that the emotional, intellectual, and spiritual social delivery was um, once again gifted to the staff that were their only contacts really for many of them. Mm -hmm. And so the families felt this isolation, the residents felt isolation, and in the future when we're challenged to a new template, we'll have to look at those kinds of things. I think too that the staffing issues I have always felt where you have um, part-time workers that go between facilities, you're probably not getting the best of their energies on all times of day because they've got so many other things along with their lives at home. And so those things have to be looked at. And I know that there's been an effort with the leadership in the provincials uh, departments to try and address that. But a good part of our challenge has been the data sharing. Mm -hmm. It has been very difficult to understand that we don't always know the data behind the worker's name or the worker's payroll number. And uh, those things are important to know. We have to have a better understanding of that data sharing. I think too, on the resource front, I think we have to be better as Canadians at paying attention to how we fund any type of seniors facility. If you're going in there and you have several assets but pay on the basis of your income, is that fair? Should you be paying for services on the basis of both income and assets so there are more dollars delivered to your 
uh, facility in the delivery of that care. And I know we've got a mixture of public and private in delivery. In Alberta, I think we've probably been fortunate to just have Alberta Health Services rather than several regions like we had when I was the health minister. You've got a lot of voices and it's just like talking in across Canada to try and get everybody collaborative on the same page is a struggle type added to that and you heard it today the municipalities have certainly struggled too and many of them are part of the long-term uh, supports for facilities lodge facilities mm -hmm. and other things and they're struggling to make ends meet so the challenges are huge but here's my level of confidence we're canadians we believe passionately in the system and we're going to make a difference and perhaps the if there's a saving light here, it's that we have been given a huge wake up call before our seniors population, the boomers really take hold and double and where we need more facilities and more supports for the things that happen in the future in long-term care. Thank you, Iris. Um, I, I wanna move us on to talk about the different um stages of care. So let me try and, and very simplistically divide into three stages. So seniors who live in their homes and, uh, and want to live independently. The second would be retirement residences and the third would be long-term care. Uh, so just talking about the, the seniors who live on their own and require some level of services. And I'll, I'll ask Vicky this because I think it's probably nurses who do this most uh, Victoria or, or Victoria Order of Nurses and others um, who visit people in their homes. How are we doing on that front? I think we have a long way to go in Ontario around supply of um, supplying services or providing services to seniors in their homes. Recently, recently, I would say over the last few years, there's been more talk about community support and supports for seniors who want to stay at home and, and should be able to stay at home. However, the services aren't, aren't, aren't there. They're the, it's, so much of this, and I think Iris alluded to, it's about fun, it, it is about funding and priorities and what we want as Ontarians, as Canadians, and what the expectations are, but what they should be. And I know that we don't have the funding support in home care that we need. And, and even when new programs start up, the backlog of services in Ontario, uh, we, with being able to provide those services is huge. And so many, many people who want to stay in their home and need even just maybe a little bit of help and sometimes a lot of help getting access to those services is, is, uh, you know, is unattainable for them. Uh, unless they have their own personal resources uh, that will enable them to purchase more services, which is really unfortunate. I think as Ontarians, as Canadians, we have to make some serious decisions. And it is about policy, about what kind of funding and support will provide and what will be publicly funded and what, what otherwise is having to be privately purchased. And I think that we have opportunities to do some of those things right now. And as I, I think I was talked about is that the crisis that we have, the tragedy in long-term care really has have people focused on long-term care. However, I hope it isn't a fleeting focus that people actually will have a serious discussions and policy makers. It will be about yes, political will, but it will be about Canadians and Ontarians and what we're prepared to do and what we're prepared to, 
to talk about inclusion in the, the Canada Healthcare Act, for instance, and, and what will be available in, uh, to all Canadians. Uh, it's a really serious conversation, but home care is a really important part and, and, and uh, underutilized. And, and generally speaking, um, we're talking about either personal support workers and or nurses who visit mm -hmm. people in their homes once a day or a couple of times a week. Is, is that kind of the range of things we're looking yeah, at? Exactly. And it varies. It varies about what kind of assistance and support people might need in their homes. And and this is many people who want to stay in their homes sometimes have some pretty complex medical issues and you need registered nurses, registered practical nurses, and sometimes nurse practitioners involved in their care and PSWs as well, personal support workers are really invaluable. Uh, in order to do that, then we have to have a, the proper infrastructure, certainly, but also the funding support to make that happen. And it's it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. And nurses who work in coordinating that care here in the province of Ontario talk to me about the backlog that they have of trying to address the needs of Ontarians. And, and I think it's quite varied across the country as to what provinces mm -hmm. provide um, yeah. in terms of staffing, but as well, also in terms of infrastructure whether mm -hmm. people buy things like, um, you know, a hospital bed or or other kinds of fixtures around a house to make it uh, more accessible and, and safer. Uh, those kinds of services and what gets covered varies across the country. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Can I move, if you don't mind, uh, move on to retirement residences? Um, and, and there hasn't been much of the, 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 the focus of discussion, uh, but are we not dealing with the same level of issues in terms of part-time workers um, in retirement residences as we do in, um, in, in long-term care? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, certainly, it's, it's a different levels that are of services that are provided in long-term care or in retirement facilities, for instance, because, you know, generally people are, so, you know, pretty much self-sufficient. They need additional services. They often have to purchase those. And then those are often done by part-time or contract. Uh, workers that they bring in to provide those services. Uh, the impact in congregate living and, and retirement homes here in Ontario has been huge. And I think our numbers of people who have been infected with COVID-19, again, you know, the, the having the infrastructure, but also the policies and procedures and the administrative support and training um, in, in retirement homes, it's, it's really putting a glaring light there as well and what we need to protect protect the people that we care for. It's really, yeah. you know, it really comes down to that. Yeah, Donna Duncan, I know you, you represent the long-term care homes, but did, did you want to comment at all on, on the level of support that's provided in the retirement residences? It, it, yeah, and, and, and on home care as well, I would say it's, uh, right. you know, a system is a group of interdependent components. Uh, we don't have any interdependence. We have we have siloed systems. So we we see large disconnects between home care and and retirement and long term care and hospital care. Uh, you know, we in, we invest in what we value, and it's very clear that there's ages in that play where we have neglected all of the services that support our seniors, but whether they're healthcare services or social services, and how do we start connecting the dots in a much more structured and thoughtful way around the needs of, of the individuals who need care. Uh, and certainly we are seeing our demographic is aging, aging in place and aging in home, whether it's uh, your own home or in retirement is profoundly important. That's an important choice and decision 
for those who have the luxury to do it and, and can. Uh, certainly the reality is uh, the level of care needs are so high. How do we make sure that we build care and supports around them and staff them, uh, staff put, build the right staff and competencies around those home care uh, and retirement care uh, services as well as in long-term care and use that as the starting point, not, not the amount of money. Uh, let's back up, make sure that we're building something in a really thoughtful way uh, and then look at the funding. But, but let's see what people and resources we need around it, uh, whether it's more nurses or RPNs or, or nurse practitioners or other physician supports and other social supports. Certainly in retirement, retirement's more like a, a home care model. Uh, mm -hmm. And in both re retirement and home care during COVID-19, the challenge has been uh, the very thing that uh, Vicky talked about is uh, staff who work part-time, who move in among multiple sites. So we, we've all shared employees among, among home care, retirement, and, and long-term care. And that's been a, a huge challenge for us, especially given the staffing resources. But in the home care side, uh, so many families didn't want people coming into their homes. So there are individuals who are not getting care right now uh, because they, they don't want someone to come in and potentially uh, infect them in their home environment. So what does home care look like? like in a COVID pandemic uh, over the next you know, 12, 24 months uh, and on, a, on, on an ongoing basis. So even as we think about what infection prevention and control looks like to give people the comfort, to give staff the comfort that they know that they're safe, what are the tools and supports we need to put around our, our home care, uh, <clears throat> retirement and, and long-term care uh, staff, whether PSWs, nurses or others, to make sure that they, they feel safe and in making, and what other skills and competencies do we need and supports do we need to put around the employees uh, so that they're not afraid and that they're willing to go to work because if, if, if our staff are safe and our employees and our professionals are safe, then the people we serve will, will feel safe and, and will feel that it's okay to get their supports. It, it is, you know, the power of fear in this dynamic is, is, uh, has created, uh, you know, myriad issues and, and risks, quite honestly, the risk of, of mm. COVID versus risk of, of being harmed from something else. Yeah, thank you, Iris. Just a brief addition to what Vicky and Dawn have cited. One unintended consequence of the CERB was that the workers in our retirement residence chose not to go to work and to collect the CERB. And so mm -hmm. immediately uh, to fulfill the obligations of the new health imposed orders on retirement facilities, we had a number of people who were no longer willing to come and who as part-timers said they'd rather collect the CERB, thank you very much. And that's happened to local businesses as well, but I think it would be an unintended consequence that the facilities that need that support would suddenly be struggling to find the right kind of support to fulfill the obligations that health issued with the orders. And I think that's of critical importance. The other thing, of course, has been the, the isolation in those residents as well, not only in homes, but in retirement residences where they were more accustomed to uh, supports in the community for other kinds of things that they were no longer getting. And I'm hopeful that the next generation are so well equipped to Zoom and host party and everything like that, that we're able to give everybody the iPad or the access to talk to their families and to do something because this time it was very obvious that it's been extremely difficult. So we have to build that into the, the plan for the future. Hello, this is Andrew Cardozo of the Pearson Center. 
The Center is a progressive think tank that facilitates thoughtful debate and dialogue while encouraging action on the issues that matter to Canadians. The Pearson Podcast is our latest venture in our efforts to lead the Canadian conversation surrounding COVID and beyond. However, we cannot do this without your support. There has never been a more important time for thinking big about Canada's future, nor a greater need for your support. To make a financial contribution to support projects like the Pearson Podcast, please visit thepearsoncenter.ca forward slash contribute. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. I, I'd like to move on to, um, we had a couple more questions, but I, I, before we move on to where we go next and what the solutions are, um, uh, Vicky O'Donnell, do you have any more, any other observations you want to share about about how conditions have been or things or, or how your role has been um, over the past uh, two or three months? Well, certainly for, for us, for myself, uh, you know, our whole organization really has focused on on trying to ensure that their proper protective equipment was available to, to nurses. And we've had to, you know, go to extraordinary avenues in order to do that, which, which is something unheard of. We had to, uh, you know, go to the Superior Court in Ontario in order to ensure that the government directives were complied with. We continue to move you know at arbitration at labor boards on on following the ontario uh, chief medical officers health directives to ensure that protective equipment is there uh, you know we're a lot of focus certainly on the current crisis that we're in uh, and ensuring nurses uh, primarily have access uh, to to what they need to in order to care for the people that they're caring for at the same time we're also uh, working, you know, closely as we can with government at various tables, talking about and ensure, you know, working with them on personal protective equipment, on what the emerging science is, looking at what we all need to do together in order to ensure that Ontarians are safe. So our work is, our focus has certainly been that, but at the same time, you know, we're preparing and getting ready for policy work and talking, you know, working with government what we expect to see that this, what all the focus has been and how we can bring um, what needs to change in Ontario and change, you know, do it quickly, yes, but also thoughtfully and making sure that we have, you know, the support. I think Ontarians certainly and Canadians, I'm sure, you know, eyes are on this. We're all isolated, you know, now. So we're, you know, really paying much more attention than maybe we would otherwise. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, I hope it's not a flash in the pan. Okay, thank yeah. you, Don. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. I, I would say that the focus of, of our activities is, has been multifold. One, it's been a lot of education. Uh, it's been quite shocking, the lack of understanding about what long-term care is, who our residents mm -hmm. are, what the, what the complexity of their health care needs uh, are is is like what our staffing issues you know we we've been trying to uh, trying to shed a light on this for for decades and yet no one was in receive mode and then COVID-19 comes and suddenly it's oh my goodness the horror and um, it, which is tragic that it's taken this uh, to open open eyes but even even the notion that that people are in long-term care because they choose to be there they're there because they were in hospital they couldn't go home because they're 
their care needs were so high that that they couldn't be supported in their home environment. And yet, you know, I, I'm shocked at, at public opinion leaders in the media and and in, and indeed even uh, in in hospitals uh, where they had no appreciation for for who these uh, who our residents are and what their needs are. And it's very very clear that that the, the homes. Uh, and the staffing models and 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 the service models, quite honestly, were not built for this resident population. And uh, our legislative framework is stuck in time. Uh, and in fact, um, it, it's so prescriptive, our nurses couldn't work to full scope of practice and in many cases wouldn't be able to uh, implement their full pandemic plan. Uh, we, we need to, to step back and really look at what, where quality fits in in this and starting to educate people uh, around what is that tension between care and a home and uh, really uh, try to balance that uh, because hospitals coming into long-term care were, would, would come in and say, oh my goodness, you have upholstered furniture, there's a rug here, there are personal belongings here, you can't have that, that's counter to infection prevention and control. So, uh, you know, we have a bigger discussion to have, as, as Vicky says, around uh, what is long-term care, uh, how do we build it, what is that continuum, how do we staff it and resource it, and, and build it from the resident and, and family needs up and, and not from, here's a funny model, squeeze what you can out of it. So that education piece has been really, really important for us. Uh, try to get out of, uh, you know, everything that we're seeing has happened as, as homes went into crisis, the need for stabilization, uh, a lot of interpretation of, of various orders and directives, which, which could change almost daily through this. Uh, the guidance uh, today is not what the guidance was when this started. Uh, so things have been shifting uh, in real time uh, trying to understand, uh, I think, to, to the point uh, uh, about different levels of government or different levels of the people in the healthcare sy system interpreting things differently, uh, where was consistency in this? So just trying to find a way about what 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 is the direction? What it, what are we supposed to be doing? Uh, and that has really evolved as we learned more about COVID-19, including uh, asymptomatic spread. The, the other uh, piece that we never thought as an association we would be into is um, we actually launched a, a job matching portal in partnership with Seneca College uh, and Tazwiz, uh, a, a company from Seneca's incubator, uh, where we have a thousand, um, a thousand uh, uh, registrants uh, across Ontario as we're trying to build a workforce in real time uh, because we know that these are other temporary measures. So those are things, that's certainly a line of business we never, in, in, anticipated, um, but uh, just the policy work. And I would say um, one thing that, that we found through this is as directives came down, they were never always put through the filter of, and how do you operationalize this guidance? How do you operationalize the directive? And so let's not have a, a, a disconnect as we go forward between the directives and what you can actually do. And I, I, I think, especially when PPE was, um, was so scarce in the beginning, issuing directives that we couldn't comply with, um, uh, and, and based on science and, uh, and disputed science, there's lots of debate going on while we're trying to save lives. I, I think we, we've, we've, this has been an uneasy dance for everybody in terms of learning how to get through this, but uh, you know, I, would, I would hope that uh, these relationships will continue and, and we'll find our way through. Okay, can, can I move to one of, the, one of the bigger ideas that has been out there? Um, about where we go next. And one of them is certainly to, to move long-term care under the Canada Health Act. Um, 
Uh, can I ask you what you think about that and, and what, what that would accomplish? Uh, Vicki McKenna, I'll ask you that first. Well, certainly uh, there's been lots of discussion about that for some time. Uh, and it, certainly in the, the, you know, amongst nursing colleagues across the country, talking about the rising need for there to be the appropriate care in long-term care. And as the, you know, the boomer generation, all of that is happening, how do we re really respond to that? The, what we see is such an inequity and in differences in services across this country. And uh, certainly when you ask Canadians, when you ask members of the public, you know, what, they, what their expectations are, they expect that they will be cared for. And I, I do too. And I think that we need to really have a serious conversation about it, but we won't actually, that will never happen unless there is a move to bring it under the Canadian Health Care Act. It won't happen unless we do that. And we have to set standards. We cannot just you know, open a door without there being a high level of regulation. And I know regulation is a hot topic for many. We, you know, many believe we have too much regulation. And I would say we can't have this, we can't be providing services without regulation in order to ensure standards are maintained. Uh, it's absolutely true, and we need it. We would like to see it under the Canada Healthcare Act, and yes, it's about resources and taxes and, and many of those, uh, those obligations that we would have in order to have a public service such as that. But I think that uh, many, well, I myself and many of my colleagues across this country believe that the Canada Healthcare Act should include long-term care and home care. But certainly this is a, something that's reared its head and I think it's a, a hopeful conversation that will happen. And certainly if there's, you know, there's certainly, it will come from the public, it will come from the Canadians and from people. If they want this, then our government should move in that direction. And Iris Evans, your, your thoughts about moving it under, moving long-term care under the, under the Canada Health Act? Do you know, um, I just percept, I, I'm going to give you a different perception. The most popular politician is the local politician, and that's because you can get your hands on that person. And the further removed you are from the people that elect you, the less likely you are to be able to have that kind of relationship. So from my 33 years experience, this is my opportunity to tell you this. Healthcare comes into the room when cabinets discuss budgets, and at provincial levels, it's almost 50%, if not more, than the provincial budget. So it gets pretty rigorous scrutiny. The federal budget for healthcare addresses Canada health insurance, the Canadian health transfers. And if you withhold dollars, those dollars have to come from somewhere to fund such an activity at the Canadian level. You may achieve a pan-Canadian um, hierarchy, but then who uh, has the ability to govern that when public health goes wrong. I mean, this uh, time in our history, we've heard more from the Canada health perspective than we have usually because the provinces under the Canadian constitution are responsible. Mm -hmm. And so it really worries me that it may not solve the problem you're trying to solve. Number one, I should be responsible for my own health plan. Number two, the boomers get better get busy and define a health plan and have some ownership to it. And number three, we've got to be willing to share data 
best practices, what worked, what didn't work during this particular period, because I think it's going to be the conversations between Vicky and Donna that will generate the most improvement, quite frankly, because every time you give it to another political hierarchy with the hope it's done, my corporations won't give me another dime for these retirement residences. They're already saying, no, those are taxpayer responsibilities. And I don't want corporates or individuals to feel that, oh, well, Prime Minister Trudeau has to look after that. That's the Canada Health Act. You've got to bring it home so that mom and dad know that they're responsible. It's my view. Okay, thank you. Uh, Donna, Duncan, your, your thoughts about the Canada Health Act? Again, I, I would echo, echo Iris. What is the, the problem we're actually trying to solve? And I, I always worry that we're conflating the Canada Health Act with the healthcare system and uh, interdependence. So the Canada Health Act you know, is guided by its, its, its five principles, which it, it's, it's a 14-page piece of legislation. So it's not as prescriptive as, as others might think. I had somebody today tell me they thought it was 1,200 pages, and I said, no, it's 14, bilingual. And so you know, I, I would I would actually argue that one of the one of the principles uh, that we need isn't in it, and and that's accountability, and that's our collective and shared accountability for how we're going to challenge each other's uh, to to come forward. You know, the federal government uh, can participate in many ways uh, in in long term care in the healthcare system. I I had the privilege of participating in consultations in 2016 uh, when the when the government was uh, negotiating the bilateral. Um, uh, 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 healthcare accords uh, with the various provinces where through that process they actually uh, dedicated funds specifically to mental health and home care. Not long-term care was not part of it, but home care and mental health were. And those are, uh, I think to Vicki's point, not, also not, not captured by the, the, the Canada Health Act. So what is it we're trying to solve and how do we actually look at system integration and integrative care models. Uh, and, and in my mind, that's where the, the work is to be done. Certainly every province is, has a lot of work to do in that regard. I, I'm not sure we need to blow up uh, federalism in, in order to do that. Uh, there's urgency right now. We need to act. We, we actually uh, can, can look at uh, making sure that the federal government keeps the supply chain open for personal protective equipment, that the federal government's working to get rapid tests uh, approved and, and mobilized and deployed across the country as quickly as possible, that the federal government can, can look at that, that health accord funding, uh, as well as infrastructure, uh, both uh, interim infrastructure. So for instance, in Ontario, if, if the direction is that uh, we will no longer have four people in a room and we we reduce those uh, that occupancy by two for all those all those rooms. We we will be taking out ten thousand long-term care beds out of the province of Ontario uh, in very short order. So then, what does that mean in terms of home care, retirement care, and 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 perhaps even even temporary accommodation that's going to have to be built? Uh, and then we have to get our infrastructure built uh, for the longer term and figure out what that actually needs to look like. Uh, so those are roles certainly where I think the federal government can step in quite quite seamlessly already. Okay, um, let, let me move to some of the questions we've had, and we've had a number. I'm going to try and summarize them and combine a few questions. So there have been a few questions around funding, um, funding being one of the major cures that would be necessary, if I can use that term. Um, so what, one of the questions is this, the systemic sexism and racism in our healthcare system, uh, especially seniors care, has 
has become clear during this COVID period. Uh, how can we overcome that? And I guess it's referring to the fact that a lot of the people working in the most uh, precarious positions are women and racial minorities. How can we overcome that with either better pair full-time positions or job security? Um, Vicki, would you like to start with that? Well, certainly what you said is true. It's certainly a female-dominated profession, no doubt about it. But certainly what we see is marginalized um, workers and, and that highly a high number of racialized and immigrant workers working in long-term care, particularly in the nursing profession, and as well as in the support services. And it's precarious employment, uh, the most, some of the most precarious employment out there with, uh, with uh, you know, job security that is certainly not certain in many cases, and also the, the equity in the, the payment uh, for healthcare professionals and, and for support services all around. It, it uh, you know, I, I remember one of my uh, instructors always said to me, like, follow the money. You know, where is the importance uh, and where are the priorities for society is you follow the money and where the investments are. And it hasn't been in long-term care. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is not a new concept. Uh, we've just come out of a long-term care inquiry report last summer. Uh, that I detailed many of these situations around the staffing issue, around training, around administrative support. Uh, all of, many, many things were outlined there. And that was not the first time, but that was just the most recent. Uh, there's been many, many studies done in Ontario in particular, and, and probably across the country, but more familiar here, about what it is that we need to do to stabilize the workforce how can we entice people to come and work in long-term care? And, and you know, what do we need in order to do that? And for the residents around quality, what do we need to do so that these, you know, in, in nursing homes in particular, these are their homes. This is where people live. And, you know, we need to treat it as that. And, and that does take um, concerted, not only effort, but investment in order to make that happen. Uh, we need to ensure that people have available to them what they should in their home, and it is their home. Uh, whether it, you know, it's a nursing home, retirement home, a home for the aged, this is where people are living, and they deserve to be treated as such. Uh, but for the workers, absolutely, is they need stability in their work, and they need to be recognized, and not to be, often they will tell me they feel like the poor cousins. Uh, working in long-term care, that they're forgotten workers, um, and the nurses themselves tell, you know, even amongst their colleagues, and this is something work we've been doing, is to, to heighten and to ensure that people, uh, you know, value the work that's done in long-term care, and there is, in the value uh, piece of this is is critically important, is that there's culture issues uh, right across healthcare in regard to how long-term care is viewed, and that is to me has always been very sad and uh, totally something that we all have a responsibility to do. Yeah. Uh, but certainly racism and just, you know, is a huge issue. It is absolutely true. And I think it's a real problem that we need to deal with. Yeah, it's Thank like we just, accept, we just accept that, uh, that that's a, a, a profession where, where women are working and mm -hmm. minorities are working and they should be happy with that level of uh, pay. Yeah, and I should just say, because we can't, yeah, right. 
Right. I, I can't help myself but to tell you, we've been in a 13-year battle for pay equity uh, in Ontario for nurses working in long-term care. And in, these are nurses who are working in the for-profit sector. 13-year battle. We just finally came through a tribunal, which now we're into another appeal situation with. The government's involved in it as well. But pay equity, you know, we, you'd think that in, you know, 20 you know, 20, we wouldn't be fighting pay equity, uh, yeah. but we are. We're fighting pay equity still in this province. D Donna, it's certainly, you know, money is, is, is a major issue here. Should the provinces not be putting in more? Should the Fed be putting in money? Is there something else we shouldn't be covering? Uh, you know, I, I, and unfortunately, we have to make choices and, and you know, how big's the pie, but, but what do we value? I think to Vicky's point, uh, if we value our seniors, then we will prioritize and invest in our seniors and we will make sure that they have the support and resources around them. Um, I, you know, I think we, we owe it to them. Do we value the people who, who built our country? Do we value the people who, who have fought for our country, who have raised their families, who have built these communities? And, and I do believe that we have to have some very large discussions uh, among the various levels of government, uh, as well as, uh, you know, where, where the private sector uh, participates uh, as well. And uh, certainly we've had lots of discussion around how they build infrastructure in different provinces and, and uh, how they partner in building hospitals and other, other buildings as well. Um, but, um, you know, somehow we have to build a, a long-term care sector, but a senior's care sector uh, that is founded uh, on, on our values, uh, including the, the people we value, but, but supports morale. I, I, the morale in long-term care right now, it couldn't be worse no, and no. Uh, in very short order if, if we're trying to build an army around around these homes right now we're having people quit daily because they 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 are the stigma of working in in long-term care is it's just escalated right now where where the entire sector and every home and every employee is now being mm -hmm. painted with with this brush uh, yeah. that this is the, that they are bad and we 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 got to find a way to to collectively at all levels of government and across the sectors and, and with our labor and other partners to, to turn a corner on that as quickly as possible because uh, our, our seniors need help. Um, but if, if, but if, if, if you're seen as being the devil and, and stigmatized and not being supported, uh, not having the tools that you need in terms of the PPE uh, or, the, or the, the, the training and support, um, it, you know, and, and all of the resources that go around that and making sure that you're in a well-resourced and funded sector in an environment that is safe. Um, we need to change that and we need to start making that change now because it's, it's unacceptable. In terms of reputation, one of the questions is also, um, just as, as, as staff are feeling the pressure, it, are, you, are you sensing uh, from seniors that they are less uh, or more reluctant to come and live in seniors' homes after having heard everything over the last few months? Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Iris. Oh, I think so. I mean, that's, that is the conversation. Where do we go that it's safe? How can you be sure that the standards are met? Um, it's interesting, our Health Quality Council every year surveys uh, over 7,000 people who are family members of people in care. And they talk about the level of staffing and they talk about the food. 
You know, it's interesting the things that people look at, but there's been a real fear about it. Are we providing enough? But let me get back to the question about inclusion and diversification. Canadians have to take a good serious look at what's happening with the neighbors south of the border and see whether we can become a more, more tolerant, inclusive society at every level, whether it's immigrant care workers, whoever it is, because we do not want to be branded with um, a racist and, and um, a, a most tragic brand of intolerance for other races and other members that are Canadian just like we are. And I, I really hope one of our periods of growth in the next few months is being more racially tolerant and inclusive. Mm -hmm. It's got tra tragic consequences in nursing or in every other profession. Yeah. Yeah. Vicki, did you want to comment on that? Well, I agree. We absolutely have to be very clear about our that we will not tolerate uh, that kind of, you know, the racism. And, and, and I am very worried about, just like you are, with what I hear about and people, it's becoming licensed or normalized in some sense on, on you know, through the meet some media channels and certainly comments made by politicians who a, a politician that I'm not going to name that seemed to give people license to to you know to behave in such ways and it's shocking that it's happening and that it's and I think people need to stand up and say this is not okay and we cannot let this go on and certainly we need to not say well it's just happening down there well I can tell you that racism is alive and well and for unfortunately so and we all have a role to play in and not allowing it to become more pervasive and we have to fight back and not let it happen and we have to be very clear about it not just silent and we have to speak mm -hmm. out and and Vicky, in terms of the reputation of of living in a senior's home whether it's long-term care or others are you finding any uh, increased reluctance of people to to move to seniors' homes. There's always a level of reluctance for seniors to move into a home. Is that going to increase now? Well, I'm afraid I don't know personally if that how much that is happening. I'm hearing from nurses who work in the sector uh, themselves and being in and hearing from family members who who are saying, "I wish we'd never brought mom here." I wish, you know, that they, they're afraid. The public is afraid and we'll have to do everything we can to restore confidence okay. in that for sure. Uh, but yes, I think the report, the military report certainly, you know, came out and it is shocking and horrific. Uh, but to many people, not surprised because many of us in the system knew there were trouble and problems for some time now. However, I do think that the public, I'm worried about their perception because we have some excellent facilities. Uh, we really do, uh, but we have problems and we need to correct those. But we need yeah. to be able to tell people with confidence that they will be safe. And that will require a lot of work, but also it will require stabilization in the staffing side of it for sure and the facility side of it. Yeah, in some ways the timing couldn't be worse because we've got a an aging society, but right. in a very cruel way, it's probably not so bad because this is the is the tragic wake up call that we're getting that we need to fix it for what's got to come in terms of the aging population. Um, exactly. we're, we've run out of time. We've, we've covered some of the questions. Uh, I apologize to those who we haven't. I think we need to do another webinar 
on this topic, uh, uh, delving a little more deeply on some of the issues. But I will ask um, our three guests uh, to to comp to for a closing comment mm -hmm. for about one minute each. Um, Vicky McKenna, you first, um, then Donna Duncan, and then Iris Evans. So, Vicky, please go. Thank you, Andrew. I just what I'd like to say for those that are listening on the webinar is that long-term care. I'm hoping that, as I said, that this will not just be a, a flash in the pan. That it's in, you know it's out in the press now. People are thinking about it, but I really hope people will engage in in thinking about long-term care and thinking about what supports are needed and participate in public. Uh, you know, it might be town hall meetings on on webinars, letting their MPPs in Ontario know how how important long-term care is, and that the government's eyes need to be on it, and that we do need, and that we need to be. It needs to be there uh, for all of us uh, in the future, probably. But at least the, the the people that come after us will say, you know, they took a, you know, took it by the reins and they did something that actually made a difference. That's what I want to be a part of. Thank you. Donna Duncan? Yeah, th thank you very much to everybody for, for participating today. And it's been, again, a, a real privilege to uh, be able to participate. Uh, just to echo Vicky's comments, um, this is a moment in time uh, that we need to seize, that we need to uh, recognize as, as the, the, the call to rally around long-term care, to come together across all levels of government, to across the healthcare sector, our social services, engaging with families, residents, uh, and, and, our, and our labor partners. Everybody needs to come together. We need to have a shared vision for what for what we're committed to doing to make things better for for our seniors and those who support them those those frontline heroes uh but we can't squander time uh there are things we actually have to do now uh this is uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic we still have uh another potential year or more uh, ahead of us. Uh, so let's not lose sight of that and become complacent. Uh, we need people to continue to social distance, but we need that PPE. We need the, the testing and focus and prioritization of our seniors for those supports. We need to build a workforce today or yesterday uh, and, and make sure that we're supporting them and validating them and, and keeping them safe so that they can keep our residents safe. Uh, this is the moment uh, and we need capital uh, improvements so that we can manage infection prevention and control we need to better work with our physicians and our medical directors there's a lot that has to happen now uh, and uh, we can't lose sight of that so we can reflect but we have to act mm -hmm. thank you donna iris evans and take the time both as individuals to plan for ourselves and to make a contribution in our community to the kinds of policies that we can be proud of the, to the kinds of policies our grandchildren will say they made that difference oh, then difference. and and really put the the pedal to the metal on this one stay well and thank you everyone it was a great privilege yes thank you very much it was a privilege thank you thank you very much vicky mckenna donna duncan and iris evans this has been a very interesting discussion